you've got a Bible, um, you might want to start turning to uh, Titus 1, 5 to 9. Titus 1 to 5, 5 to 9. A bit different um, this morning, though. We're not going to be reading the passage right at the beginning, but right at the end. Okay. Uh, I'm not specifically going to be uns- unpacking the passage this morning because it's pretty self-explanatory. If you're um, here for the first time, welcome to Jubilee Church Teesside. There's a few new people here. Come again. We love having people visit us at Jubilee Church. If you're looking to make this church uh, your home, at least, or at least exploring that possibility, uh, please come and speak to me or one of the elders or someone who's brought you. Please come and join us at the welcome desk and hopefully we can answer some of your questions. So, just to put it, things into perspective, we're now um, into the third week of this sermon series, releasing everyone, looking at the Apostle Paul's letter, his pastoral letters, uh, written as guidance to churches, helping them set good foundations for pastoral care and discipleship, releasing everyone. Just to put this into context in terms of the vision of Jubilee over the, fat, over the last few months or so, um, we've, exploring, we've been exploring this very area of church life um, with different members of the church, with leaders grappling with the big, big question, how should pastoral care and discipleship look like as the church moves forward? As you know, regular here. God has really given us a a challenging mandate, um, a vision rooted in our Isaiah 61 for our vision plan. As you all know, um, receiving Jesus, reaching out, restoring community and releasing everyone. Jubilee, God is looking for a people, hear this, God is looking for a people transformed by the miraculous uh, freedom-setting joy news of Jesus and to take that very same miraculous joy news to the places and people he takes us to. The The extraordinary thing about the God of Christianity is he wants us to partner with him as he's doing stuff in the world around us. What a God! What a privilege. And so, as part of that journey, if you like, as we're exploring what does pastoral care and discipleship look like in Jubilee, we're now in, as a church, the pastoral letters, because the best place to come is to the Word of God, when we're looking for those answers. And this morning, and so this morning, we're going to be looking at the area we've talked. I think we've looked at freedom. We've looked at doctrine, freedom in Christ, doctrine. This morning, we're going to be looking at leadership in the church. Now, the passage I've given you is specifically about eldership, but I believe it's a model for all types of leadership in the church. In fact, a good way for all of us to live. Um, Particularly, and, and, but this morning, before we get to that passage, I particularly want to concentrate on how Jesus raised leaders. We talk a lot about the character of leaders. We talk a lot about what leadership entails. But we don't often talk about how we raise leaders or how God calls us to raise leaders. In a day where there is so much written about this in secular writing and church organization books, my, uh, my bookshelf's full of them, Um, It would do us good, I believe, 
to ask the very, very important question, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Or more importantly, what did Jesus do? You see, leadership is very important to Jesus. You can see that throughout the Gospels. Leadership in, um, in, in the church is God's delegated process of kingdom advancement, of authority, of government, of oversight in the church. Bill Hybel is a great teacher of leadership and, uh, and he leads a massive church in America. He says, if God has given you a kingdom vision, if you see it clearly and feel it deeply, you'd better take responsibility for it, says Bill. You had better give your life to it. That's why God made you a leader. And so what I want to look at this morning primarily is Jesus' lessons on raising leaders, which in, which in some way or another we all have a responsibility for, actually, in the church, whether, you're, whether you regard yourself as a leader or not. And also, I hope, we'll glean things from looking at Jesus as we see how he leads um, his disciples. We, I, I, I'm hoping that we can glean some nuggets of wisdom in how we lead in life. Yeah? In marriage, in parenting, in work, in areas of influence. So before we get on to um, uh, the meatiness of this talk, let's just pray. Yeah, I thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious God. I thank you, Lord, for those pictures of Elisha, of Aaron. I thank you, Lord, that you call your, God, your church to great purpose. And you call leaders, you raise leaders, you grow leaders, you mature leaders. You pour out your Holy Spirit on leaders. You give the Word of God to leaders. You put your leaders amongst a loving community to be nurtured by the people of God, to be encouraged by the people of God, to be challenged by the people of God, so that we as a church can move forward. I thank you, Lord, for the leaders in Jubilee. I thank you for the history of people who've led for years in some way or another. I thank you for new leaders. I thank you for people, uh, for those uh, small calls on people's lives pulling them in, drawing them to your great purpose. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll give me wisdom this morning as I unpack this word, that we would receive this word and that we would be a people that honour leadership, God-given leadership in the church and nurture it well. We ask that in Jesus' name. So, fasten your seatbelts. You can just about read that, but it'll... It'll, um, it'll get a bit brighter as you go along. Fashion your seatbelts, put your helmets on. Nine points. We're going to be quick. 30-ish minutes. Jesus' lessons on leadership. So, one. Jesus, Jesus, this is when I re sort of read through the Gospels, Jesus picked the disciples he personally wanted. When Jesus appointed his 12 leaders, it says in Mark 3.13 that Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. I love that. This is a very significant statement. Releasing leaders and leadership development in the church is a personal, relational activity. A bit like a father and a son. It requires a, a certain degree of two-way chemistry. 
Jesus wanted those 12 men, and this could be applied to men and women in church, obviously, in leadership, but Jesus wanted those 12 men specifically. He saw in them something he personally could influence because there was relationship, there was a closeness, or at least a potential for it. That is very important. Jesus' decision actually was made all the more strong and confident in the fact that he did it out of prayer and seeking his Father's wisdom and guidance. You see, many people will have lots of talents, and it's great to have a church like this, with people with lots of talents and gifts and abilities in the church, but won't necessarily be on the teams that, for instance, I build. That might come as a shock to you. That might come as a great blessing to you. There may be other people, there may be on other people's teams, because that relational chemistry is there, but not necessarily mine. We're different, aren't we? God calls us to be different. That might, uh, but in team, there need, I believe in team, there needs to be a rapport, a bond, a connection, a seeing eye to eye, a friendship even, that goes beyond just ability. Otherwise, teams can sometimes be really tricky. They just can. I've been in teams like that where I've really wanted something to work, but it, I was pushing it. We're all different, aren't we? And so in that diversity of character and emotions and what I call quirkiness, God builds different teams across the church who are relationally strong, who are friends together. I love it. It's actually very vibrant and dynamic and beautiful, actually. But let me tell you two observations, two difficult things that I've found with this tension of choosing really close people, but also leading people. One, as we choose people we want, we've got to watch out for not choosing people or just choosing people that are just like us. That would be catastrophic in my situation. Actually, that's not helpful either, is it? We need diversity. We need men and women from different walks of life, different life experiences, from different ethnic and social backgrounds, with different abilities and motivators. And having people who are friends in your team who are also quite different to you can actually be quite challenging as we navigate through different ideas and priorities and sometimes disagreements, different ways of thinking. There's a tension there that God asks us, requires of us, to relationally work out. And he does that by spirit. The second difficulty about choosing people we want and are close to and trust and get on with is when we have to de-team. I don't know if that's a real word. In close friendship teams, uh, in close friendship teams, it's one of the hardest things we do because in the midst of relational closeness, that's what God requires of us, remember? We have, we have to make change decisions as the church moves on, as the needs of the church change, as gifting requirements change. I've come to realize that myself through some artwork and pride bashing in myself that the role of leadership in various teams that I've been part of is much more about the church than it is about me. 
Yeah? And that's how I've got over some of those disappointments. One of the things that I've said this to Angela and Jonathan before, one of the things that have really helped me and Charlotte is a phrase that they've coined, you've got to choose not to be offended. That's been really helpful for me. Angela 5, 14. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit. Yeah? This choosing has a purpose. Jesus picked the disciples he personally wanted, and that dynamic wasn't always easy. Just letting you into a few secrets in the way we lead. Two, Jesus called his disciples to share life. Mark 3.14 records that Jesus, uh, he appointed 12 that they might be with him. He appointed the 12 disciples that they might be with him. Not do a whole lot of stuff with him, although they did. Being with Jesus was the basis for doing things for for Jesus. There's a great vulnerability in raising leaders for the kingdom. When we look at the day-to-day life of Jesus in the Gospels, we see Jesus giving himself to them every day, don't we? You really get the feel of that as you read the dynamic nature of the Gospels and later on in Acts. They lived out his hunger and his tiredness and homelessness with him. He schooled them up close in in what rejection would look like, because they had to deal with that in the future. Being with Jesus was real, on-the-job training. Everything he wanted them to get, he demonstrated to them before he explained it to them. Jesus teaches how to pray like you, his disciples asked. Because why? Because they saw something in his prayer life that had power and intimacy with the Father. When Jesus washes their feet and teaches them great humility and servant leadership, he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. As Lord, he tells them what to do. As teacher, he shows them how to do it all in the context of this very intimate moment with Jesus. It's beautiful. Sharing life together and being being right in there with others is essential to how we raise other leaders. One of the things that God, I might have shared this with you before, but kind of things have progressed. One of the things that God has challenged us as a family over the years is the issue of opening our home up to others. That our home was a commodity, one of the commodities that God has given us to share. All too often in our Western thinking, our homes, our time, our nuclear families uh, can be fortified castles which we badly steward before God. That doesn't mean we don't have boundaries. We do. Of course we do. That's important. But I feel God would challenge many of us this morning about how we steward our homes, even if they're small, that's not an excuse. And actually, our, and how we steward our immediate families. Jubilee, our homes, our married life, if you're married, and immediate families, 
have immediate families. Those things are temporary. Hear this. Those things are temporary compared to the eternal family of God. Think about that. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 radically speaks of his leadership amongst the Thessalonian church. He says, We were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children. I remember Ian Galloway sharing that with me when I was El Dorado a few years ago. Wow! What could be more intimate and close and nourishing as a breastfeeding mum? If I said that at work, I'd get sacked. But the church is different. As leaders in the church, we are called to share our life's possessions and space with those we are bringing along on the journey. One, Jesus picked the disciples he personally wanted. Two, Jesus called his disciples to share his life. Three, Jesus involved them in ministry. He did, didn't he? Those of you who've been involved in life with me, hope you're still doing okay. Hopefully you've experienced a little of this. At our devoted groups, um, you guys will increasingly experience some of this. At my workplace, people get this. Sometimes I think we can be a bit too protective about who we release. I know for a fact that as I explore releasing different people by giving them tasks and responsibilities, you know what, I'll make, a, I'll make a few mistakes, maybe lots of mistakes, but equally, some of those people will make great strides for God. And it's often as we involve them in, the thing, in things um, that Christ-likeness gets formed. That's what maturity is about. Mark 6.30 says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. This was a dynamic relationship. Our discipleship of others isn't um, isn't all about just giving answers, but rather bringing people on a process of discovery and finding out themselves. There's a famous teaching quote, I don't know if you know I teach GPs, um, there's a fa- famous uh, teaching quote that um, says, people will remember 20% of what you tell them, so 20% for you, 40% of um, what you tell them and show them, but 80% of what they discover themselves. Discovering. Jesus involved himself his disciples in ministry and checked on their progress as a tool of forming himself in them. Christ-likeness. Four. He sent them out. Jesus sent them out in pairs. Discipleship Jesus' way was primarily a group activity. I think Sarush said that last week. In Mark 6, 7, we read that calling the twelve to him, all twelve, he then he began to send them out two by two, still not alone, and give them authority over impure spirits. Go out and do those things together and from the together. Right from the very start, each disciple knew that he wasn't on his own. Right from the start, all of Jesus' trainees realized in themselves 
uh, realized that in themselves they didn't have all the gifts and talents to get them through. That in community they complemented one another, encouraged one another, looked out for one another. God has called us as a church to be releasing everyone. Not that I didn't say God has called me or the elders uh, to release everyone. No, this Isaiah 61, for our mandate, is actually for all of us. We all have a responsibility, you and me. And primarily, we see that, we foresee that as happening for the next few years anyway, in our devoted community group, community plans and structures. I'm not just talking about the meeting that happens every month. I'm talking about our month. Um, I'm talking about uh, uh, this community of believers who love Jesus. This pastoral structure, which we should all be a part of, contribute to, give priority to, sometimes sacrifice for, and not doing so only not and not doing so only not only hinders. Um, your growth in this church, because actually this is the pastoral structure that we feel God has called um, us to operate through, it not only hinders your walk with God, actually it deprives others of your contribution to it. A very important contribution. That's the beauty and challenge of God's community, isn't it? This is how the Apostle Paul puts it when he's encouraging the church at Corinth. There is one body, but it has many parts. But all its parts make up one body. It didn't matter whether we were Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, Eritrean, Iranian, Brit, South African, South Bank, or Stokesley, doctor or dustbin, dustbin man 22 or 82, qualifications or no no qualifications, ex-convict or privileged upbringing, male or female, the list can go on and on. Roger's paraphrase. We were all given the same spirit to drink. So the body is not made up of just one part. It has many parts. God has placed each part in the body just as he wanted it to be. If all the parts were the same, how could there be a body? The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are the ones we can't do without. The parts that we think are less important we treat with special honour. In that way, the parts of the body will not take sides. All of them will take care of one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part shares its joy. You, Jubilee, are the body of Christ. Each one of you is part of it. That's a beautiful scripture, isn't it? Phenomenal. What What a beautiful picture of life together with Jesus. Do you have such a high view of community? Are you right in the midst of it? One, Jesus picked the disciples he personally wanted. Two, Jesus called his disciples to share his life. Three, Jesus involved them in ministry and checked on their progress. He gave them feedback. Four, he sent them out in pairs. It was a community activity. Five, five. He taught them about their first love. Jesus. Their identity in Jesus was the first and foremost, most important thing they needed to know. Saru packed this in a little, 
unpacked this a little, in a little bit of detail last week. John 5.19, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, now, knowing that truth, remain in my love. It's an action. Not passive, it's an action. This is the motivation that keeps us right, keeps us going, keeps us focused. We're in Christ, nothing can separate us from that, can it? This is the truth that defeats despair or rejection by the world or insults. It's a love that makes us more and more beautiful. It's a love that brings joy in suffering and insult. Jubilee, we are called to receive Jesus every day in our prayer lives, in our lives of worship, in our reading of scripture, meditation, silence, celebration, service, fasting, simplicity. These are the habits, the spiritual disciplines that keep our love alive. That's how we remain in Jesus' love. Knowing the truth of who we are spurs us on in these things. They're not there as spinning plates. Yeah. But rather, these disciplines or habits are are fire, our love for Jesus more and more because we know we are rooted in Christ. Knowing our first love is imperative. Six, he taught them the significance of the church in his plans. That's, a, that's really important. You know, you, know this or, you know this already, but I'll say it again. I am passionate about the church. Even more so, I am passionate about this church. Over the years, I've become more and more and more and more passionate about this church. You. Whether it's, do, whether it's going well or whether it's not going so well, whether we're struggling along or zooming ahead, whether we're feeling really connected or slightly distant. We've had those uh, experiences in the past. I am always aware that the church is Jesus' precious, beloved bride. The church is the only true hope of the world. The church is Jesus' primary kingdom-transforming tool. Jesus is building his church jubilee. Jubilee, ju- ju- jubilee is to be a building. Jubilee is to be his building, not ours. Serving Jesus means serving his church and making his aims our aims. That's why we have an Isaiah for our vision. He spoke it directly into the hearts of others before us and now into us. It's much bigger than sometimes we get or live out. Raising leaders means getting them caught up in this exciting reality. I'm so confident and excited about the decision Jonathan and Sandra have made in terms of supporting a church plant in Derby. As an eldership team, we are fired up with all that they're doing. Well done. Very much rooted. What they are doing is very much rooted in the church's mission. Sad. Very sad. Yes. You know I blubber, some of you. But thrilled also. 
As a church in the West, we're privileged to be partnering with churches across the world, Ethiopia, Turkey, Spain, Tanzania, Canada, America. I'm really looking forward to meeting this guy, Michael Okotia, from Ghana in May, who Luke and Fair have uh, got to know over the last few years. A man who's really been faithful serving his church and other churches across West Africa as he has, lo- oh, as he has larger oversight. He's, go- he's going to be with us over the prayer week time for a, a couple of weeks. Welcome him. Be inspired by his prayer life and faith. The Apostle Paul tells us about the church this. A big, big view of the church. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities and to the heavenly realms, in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus taught his disciples the significance of the the church in his plans, and his disciples spread the word. Seven, we're nearly there. He taught them the cost of discipleship. Jesus taught them the cost of following him. In all this, Jesus never said it would be easy. He just didn't. Our Western culture, our Western understanding and expectation of the church is probably a little bit too narrow. Our international friends probably get this a bit better than us. Jesus was upfront about the cost of following him all the time. He spelt out regularly, crystal clear, that becoming a leader in his church, in the church of Jesus, would involve some degree of suffering and insult. And that varies across the world. He said things like, in Luke 9:23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross an execution tool, daily and follow me. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you too. He said in Luke 10.3, go, I'm sending you out uh, um, like lambs among wolves. Thanks, Jesus. Luke 21, you'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters and relatives and friends. They'll put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Don't like Jesus now, do we? Of course we do. That's the deal as a believer, isn't it? We will face trials and suffering of many kinds. James 1, 2, in James 1, 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's what Shirley was saying. Standing. What's James saying here? He's saying this. In all our suffering and insult and hardship, for the sake of the gospel, he's asking us to deliberately stop for a moment and consider and think and reason out suffering from God's bigger point of view. In that standing in the midst of trial and suffering, God changes us. God molds us. God shapes us. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. doesn't get as bad as that, does it? Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. 
He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. He goes from despair to pure joy. Eight. Almost there. He he taught them to live by faith. He taught them to live by faith. Faith is the prized, the cherished, the treasured commodity of life with Jesus. Faith is the thing that God appreciates most. most. Faith shouts of a heart set on Jesus and the journey he takes us on, come what may. Doesn't it, Alan and John? I've had some good meetings with these guys, with different people just recently. God loves with a great love the man whose heart is bursting with a passion for the impossible. William Booth, who started the Salvation Army. Faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible. Corrie ten Boom, who saved many Jews in the Nazi persecution. Leaders, Jubilee, live by faith. Leaders know and live out daily that nothing is impossible with God. And do you know what? It's contagious. Sharing that life of faith together breeds in people lives of faith. Paul Woodward really had that effect on me as he shared stories. There are people in this church every week that inspire me to greater acts of faith, challenge me. Not always the loud ones, but actually the ones who do it, the silent ones, the ones who do it in the background. You know who I mean. Some of you are in this room. Finally, number nine. Jesus taught us to rely on God, the Holy Spirit. Jubilee, and the prophetic has really been speaking that to us this morning. Jubilee, we are not alone. We have a God who is in control. Jesus clearly reassured his disciples times times and time again about, about this as their faith was gradually ebbing away and Jesus' death was approaching fast and persecution was coming in. In the midst of this turmoil that the disciples were facing as Jesus was going to the cross, he pierces them with this radical truth. He says in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. You know what? There's no greater lesson or comfort than this for anyone called to leadership, and I'm really getting this. over the last year or so. Jesus promises that his disciples will not only remember his mighty works and tell others about them, but by faith and through God's Holy Spirit will themselves do even greater works. That's what the Bible tells us, doesn't it? Come, Lord Jesus, do that amongst us. Life in the Spirit is what 
um, is what disciples of Jesus are called to. Men and women and children drenched in the power, uh, 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 drenched in the power of God. The Spirit of God, it's contagious. It's overwhelming. It's overflowing. It breaks through. It's transforming. Wow! Spirit of God, come come across this church. That's what I pray regularly on Monday and other days. And so in all this, we come to this passage this morning. Although it reads specifically about eldership, I'm going to read it out, it's actually a model for all of us, all of us, especially leaders. But it's actually about all of us. The key fruit of life in the Spirit is character formation. And you see, when people talk about leadership, they probably they often talk about that in the first thing, and by the end, we've forgotten it. So that's why I've deliberately left it to the end this morning. The key fruit of life in the Spirit is character formation and faith. Holiness these days is becoming more and more unfashionable. But God, more than anything, is forming this in us. Holiness, integrity, obedience are the hallmarks of the disciples of Jesus, motivated by His grace and empowered wonderfully by His Spirit. Jubilee, as you pray for your leaders, I know a lot of you do, pray for character formation more and more. Pray for character protection more and more. I've seen leaders come out because of this. Let's let's pray for character modelling. And the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Pray this over us. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, uh, have, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That increasingly, that increasingly we, they, the disciples of Jesus, leaders, will be people who you can follow, who can say confidently, like the Apostle Paul did, imitate me, not because they're perfect, but rather because we see in them a desire for God to shape them, to mature them through repentance and faith and prayer and experience and God's love. Maturity is learning by experience to put faith and truth into practice. That's what God wants to see and do in our leaders. Leadership. I'm going to end with this. uh, Leslie Newbigin writes this. Leadership of a congregation in its mission to the world will be first and foremost in the area of his or her own discipleship. In that life of prayer and daily consecration which remains hidden from the world but is the place where the essential battles are either lost or won. I'm going to read the passage this morning, okay? And as I read it, you'll be able to see it up there, as I read it, I just want us all to be, to silently pray for those who have, you know who they are, we have community group leaders, we have kids work leaders, we have elders, we have 
uh, trustees. We have different leadership throughout Jubilee. Men, women, younger people, older people, different backgrounds. Yeah, it's great to be in a church like this. I want to see God release more and more of us into the uh, call of God through this church. But as we read this, and it's specifically about elders, right? So we take the word of God seriously. This is specifically about elders. But as I said at the beginning, I believe it's a model for leadership throughout the church. Okay. This is the high goal of the Spirit working in us. So as I read it out, in fact, why don't we all read it out? Why don't we all read it out? A symbolic, what what was that, Kyrian? A symbolic act is um, very important or something. (laughs) Forgotten it already. Powerful. So I'd like you to read this out. And as you read it, let it resonate. We're going to read it slowly. But as you read it, if the band can come out, that would be good. Um, As you read it, I'm going to play play, play some music just in the background. As you read it, and when I finish reading it, I just want to start, I want you to start looking at some key words in these lists and start praying over the church. Start praying about specific people. You might even want to go, God might actually call you to go and get out of your seat and go to someone and start laying hands and praying for them. Men with women, women with women, uh, if that's okay in a public context, that's what we'd like to see. Um, But I would just want the Spirit of God to touch us this morning as we honour and we understand much deeper the servant leadership, the steward leadership of God. Titus 1, 5 to 9. Are we all going to read it loud? Shout it out loud. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refuse those who oppose it. Heavenly Father, we pray, we thank you We thank you for the wisdom of the Bible. We thank you that you are in charge and we're not. We thank you, Lord, for this church. We thank you for the many servants, steward leaderships, generous uh, leaders in this church. We thank you, Lord, for lives given to you. And we pray, Lord God, this morning as we look at those nine points, those nine things, WWJD, what did you do, Jesus? We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will form those Christ-releasing, Christ-forming attributes in us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. I just want you to read. And as you're reading, let's just pray. Oh, if you can put it back up. Titus 1, 5-9.
you've got a Bible, Titus 1, 5 to 9. 